Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is The Leap. I'm Judy Campbell. And I'm Amy Standen. About 10 years ago, Alan Whitman and Andrew Masters were working at a truck manufacturing plant in Indiana called Navistar, and they hated it. It was pretty much hell. (laughs) (laughs) Navistar, along with the whole automotive industry, was struggling. There'd been some bad management decisions, trucks that weren't meeting new pollution standards. According to Andrew and Alan, the company was bringing in lower paid workers from India for Navistar employees to train. We try to, you know, teach them English and... uh, engineering and, uh, you know, ABS brake systems, you know, and transmissions. And it's totally clear to you guys that the, re- like, you are basically having to facilitate your own layoffs. Uh, we, we knew our jobs were, would be coming to an end. There was no doubt. He says this was all pretty explicit. From Alan and Andrew's standpoint, there was just zero motivation to do a good job. So, you know, I did at least 15 minutes of work a week <laughs> after that. Navistar didn't want to talk when I called them, but Alan and Andrew say everything just soured between them and management. It became us against them, and that's when Whitman started telling me about this stuff he had in high school. Okay, so back up about 15 years. Alan's in high school in a small town in Ohio, and he's kind of a screw-up. What did your parents, like, like, what did people think, you know, a little Alan was going to do when he grew up? Probably uh, live in a van down by the river. <laughs> His main interest was pranks, specifically smell-related pranks. There was one with Lindberger cheese, something else he called the ketchup situation. But it wasn't until he began experimenting with a chemistry set his parents gave him that he'd create his masterwork, something that would change the course of his life. Alan invented a smell. He's cagey when asked what exactly the ingredients were, but he's very comfortable describing how it smells. It smells like ass. It's, butt, it's a butt crack, you know. Kind of sewer smell with a little hint of some dead animal in there. Butt crack with a hint of dead animal. I own a bottle of this stuff. It's called liquid ass. You can get it online. And it's important that you understand how bad this smell is. It's kind of the linchpin to this whole story. What you have to know is that it's not a fart spray. It's different. It's more visceral. So I asked Judy. She's my co-host. I asked her to come and take a smell. (laughs) It's super real. Do you feel like there's a sense of shame associated with that smell? (laughs) Yeah, like you feel like you shouldn't know what that smells like. Exactly, but you do. <laughs> also, my friend Matt, a self-described super smeller. <laughs> my throat's constricting. Another friend, Caroline. <sighs> and also Casper, my son. He's two and no stranger to terrible smells. Gross! Liquid Ass got its debut in Alan's high school English class. He put some liquid in a little cup and wrapped it up like a birthday present. Put the bow on the side and dropped it off by the classroom of the teacher who I did not care for at the time. 
The teacher tried to get some kids to take the box out to a dumpster. The kids refused. And for Alan, a light bulb went off. This wasn't just a smell. It was a weapon, a better weapon than even he realized at the time. You can't tell where it's at. I mean, you just think the sewers blew up or the crappers blew it up or whatever. You know, you're not looking for somebody spraying a substance. You never go there, so I never got caught. Liquid ass is like the atomic bomb of smells. It's so disproportionately powerful that it's hard to imagine a dispute that really deserves it. And yet once it exists, it's hard not to look for a place to use it. Like you find yourself shaping your foreign policy around this tool that you've invented and now can't uninvent. It changes history by virtue of simply existing. And that's sort of what happened with Alan. Welcome to the future of manufacturing. Fast forward about 15 years. The versatile, scalable, and future-ready Mahindra Vehicles Manufacturing Limited plant in Chakan, home to Mahindra Navistar trucks. The writing's pretty much on the wall at this point. Alan and Andrew are convinced they're going to lose their jobs. And that is when Alan remembers that baby food jar. I said, you know what? I have some. It's, it's probably over 15 years old. And uh, maybe I'll bring it in if I can get the top off. He got the top off. Alan transferred the contents to a Visine bottle. And just like that, work became a joy. And I wouldn't even have to set the alarm to go into work. I, I mean, because you just woke right up. You're like, oh, I yeah. can't wait to get the hell in there and watch this. Their favorite spot was the break room. They like to call it warming the kitchen. Wait till no one's looking, squirt some liquid ass near the microwave, and then pull up a chair. All work ceased, and you have... You would see groups of them gathered together discussing what the smell could be. These are engineers. They like figuring stuff out. I heard an engineer saying that, well, it must be the water main. There you go. <laughs> Problem solved. Wrong. Management pulled up the carpet. They replaced the microwave, put up yellow caution tape around the bathroom. All of a sudden, work was the best place to go every day. You're ruling the place. And that's when an alternative future revealed itself to Alan and Andrew, a leap based on the idea that maybe this gag Alan came up with in his teenage bedroom could be useful to other people, maybe lots of people. Liquid ass might turn into liquid gold. Here's Andrew. I told him that. I said, this is the best stuff. I'm like, why aren't we selling this? We can sell this. Staking your future on liquid ass was not, on the face of it, a great idea. Andrew had been working toward a master's degree in math. Alan had been saving up to open a car wash. Liquid ass was neither of those things. But they each came up with $18,000 and decided to make a go of it. We'll start down the road, we'll go 50-50 and see what happens. By this point, Alan was married to a woman he'd met in high school, the one he pulled that Lindberger cheese prank on. She did not love this plan. But Alan knew he was on to something, so he made her a promise. I knew it was the best out of any fart spray or any stink that was out there. I knew it was going to work. I didn't know how we'd advertise. I didn't know how we'd get there, but I knew it was the best. So I just told her, I said, I'll tell you what. I said, when we make our first nickel, I'll take you back to... Uh, it was a place called Sandals Negril where we got married. A Sandals resort in Negril, Jamaica. I said, if we make some money, we'll pack up and we'll go again. But what about Andrew? Liquid House wasn't even his invention. He was the smart kid in the family, the math whiz. And now he was about to become a pitchman for the smell of butt crack and dead animal. I'm like, oh, you're crazy. This is Andrew's brother, Jason. He says he was supposed to be the screw-up in the family, the one who got C's. But his view of this whole enterprise, his brother's cockamamie plan, his opinion of all of this changed the minute he first smelled the product. I thought, oh my God, is this my brother? <laughs> Basically, I didn't ever think he had it in him. But you know what? Still waters run deep. 
Alan and Andrew's leap worked. Two years after they launched the company, Alan took his wife back to Sandals. Liquid Ass didn't have to advertise. Radio talk shows were doing it for them. Have you ever seen that there's a bottle in, of, uh, do you know what Liquid Ass? Yes. yes. Bob of this oh. love sponge who works here uses Liquid First Ass all the time. It's awful yeah. shit, man. Yeah, awful. Liquid Ass. That's Howard Stern. It smells. It smells. The Opie and Anthony show. Smell your ponytail. Smell your ponytail. I stink. <laughs> it's not bad. It goes away. I just away. washed my hair. <laughs> Suddenly the orders were pouring in. People were spraying it in locker rooms, at work, on neighbors who made too much noise. Alan and Andrew began diversifying their product line. There's Barfume, then Texas, which combines butt crack and dead animal with Texas-style barbecue. And handmade fake dog poop, which I'll admit doesn't really wow me from the sound of it, but I guess it can't all be liquid ass. And as they tell it, liquid ass is Alan and Andrew's only job. This is how they make a living, and it's not even that much work. How many hours a day do you spend working on liquid ass? I don't know, maybe, maybe an hour? That's Alan. He handles most of the emails, taking orders and such. I don't know. It, 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 it sort of varies. I mean, day to day, sometimes, sometimes I won't do anything at all. Other days, I might spend half a day. At some point, they got together and picked a place to move the company, literally looked at a map. North Carolina seemed nice, mild winters, lots of outdoor sports. So that's where the ass factory is. A couple times a month, they go in to do bottling. We'll get together and say, hey, you know what? It's raining today. There's nothing else to do. Let's go ahead and bottle some ass today. Alan plays drums in a couple of bands, liquid neon, vintage vinyl. Andrew's kind of an outdoorsman. I do some <laughs> kayaking, I do a good bit of hiking, some rock climbing. Yeah, it's, it's a great life. So this feels like the end, but it's not. Because there's another character in this story, liquid ass itself. And that smell is about to take its own leap, from a gag gift, a kind of prank warfare, to something that's pretty much the opposite of funny. Actual warfare. Sort of. That's coming up in the second half of our show. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to The Leap. This story is about the leap of a very bad smell. Silk Stockings was a TV show from the 90s, one of those shows you might have seen on the USA Network when the house where you were babysitting didn't have HBO. The show was produced in San Diego by this guy, Sue Siegel. What kind of shows are these? Mostly action events or shoot-em-ups. We don't do a lot of love stories. 
Siegel did Renegade, starring Lorenzo Lamas. Poor hit cops don't have a prayer. Hold it, hold it, hold it. And Hunter, which I've never really heard of, but according to my husband Chris, a lot of people, including him, watched religiously as a kid. He says shout out to anyone out there who had a crush on Dee Dee McCall. It starred former NFL player Fred Dreyer playing Sergeant Rick Hunter, a cop who played by his own rules and even had his own catchphrase. Works for me. Stu Siegel's studio was thriving on these shows through the 90s. But then, just as the American trucking industry hit a wall, so did Stu's. Like them, he was about to take a leap, too. He just didn't know it yet. It happened in the course of a day, September 11, 2001. My business changed after 9-11 because the networks wanted to get away from uh, violence. They wanted to get away from shooting things and blowing stuff up. And uh, yeah, it, it was a dramatic change. It, it flatlined my business for quite a while. One day we were in uh, the thick of making television, and the next day we weren't. All those sets he'd built were just sitting there, gathering dust. What was he going to do with it all? One of Stu's neighbors near the studio was the DEA. Stu had a ton of drugs, pretend drugs. Maybe the DEA would want them. So I called up the DEA and I said, I've got a couple of pallets of fake cocaine. Do you have any interest in it? The only thing I think that didn't have it, I don't think they heard the word fake. Because they had three agents up at my door in about four minutes. But it gave him an idea for a whole new business venture. Maybe cops who needed training could get some use out of those old sets. It was a Veronica Mars set, if I'm not mistaken. It was a school. This was after Columbine, and it turned out local police wanted a new strategy for responding to school shootings. Stu's old high school was the perfect place to figure it out. We did quite a bit of training on, on that kind of front. In 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq. Reservists were being called up to go overseas. And a lot of them Stu already knew, because these were the same people, cops mainly, who'd been training on his sets. One day he got a phone call. Called me up and said, hey, I got 150 guys sitting here on the tarmac. We're going to a place called Iraq. We got about a week to kill. Can you help us out? And I said, yeah, come on over. So that's how it started. Stu's big idea was that he could use not just the sets, but the whole lineup of Hollywood effects to create a facsimile of combat, show soldiers exactly what they were stepping into. He says no one else was doing this. 18 and 19-year-olds were being sent to Iraq with almost no sense of how the place would look, what the culture was like, how to communicate with people. All their training was pretty much sterile, or make-believe this is that, or they would take the Marines and turn their shirts inside out and say, okay, those are the bad guys. You know, that's... That's not training. It's not realistic training. Stu says the military has gotten a lot better at training since then. But in the beginning, his innovation was to try and make trainees forget that they were in San Diego. His sets should look and feel as much as possible, like the kind of place a group of Marines might go out and patrol. And it's in the context of these very realistic combat scenarios that we will be reunited with the true star of this story. So we're in a simulated Iraqi village. Stu got one of his employees, Greg Figueroa, to show me around. Up on this tower here, we'll have two huge speakers playing called prayer. In this simulation, this whole place would be full of actors, actual Iraqis who live in San Diego and now get hired as extras to act like Iraqis, hawking stuff. Mr. Mister, you know, come here, you buy, you buy. Drinking tea, eyeing the soldiers suspiciously. This is a digression, but the village has a complete fake Iraqi marketplace. Bins of plastic cucumbers and yams, stands selling dusty old Sony discmans and clock radios. Greg and others here work very hard to make this place look realistic. And Greg can do this because he did two tours of Iraq as a medic in 2007 and 2008. And he remembers exactly what it felt like to walk into a village like this. 
house, how unwelcome he felt there, how much the Iraqis wanted him to go away. These people are just trying to live their lives, and now we set up this base right outside their village, and they now have these bad guys coming in and saying, hey, if you cooperate with these Americans, you know, we're going we're gonna to take you out. So in a simulation, the whole place is supposed to feel on edge, like anything could happen, and then it does. I watched a video of one of these simulations. It's chaos. An RPG explodes, people are running, screaming, bleeding. There's smoke and machine gun fire. You know, we'll have a role player like up in the tower, even up here sometimes with an AK, shooting blanks, super loud. Meanwhile, sometimes they'll pipe in the sound of a scene from Saving Private Ryan. Just to amp things up a bit. You can talk about it intellectually beforehand, but once the gunfire goes and people are screaming and yelling, all the things that happen, it is real. Except nobody dies and nobody bleeds out and we can do it again. Stu says he's seen recruits wet their pants, even throw up in these simulations, both normal reactions to the screaming, the smoke, the explosions, the disorientation of it all. And yet these recruits, teenagers, some of them, are going to have to make decisions in the midst of all of that, life or death decisions. Some of them, the medics, will have to deal with horrible injuries, amputations, severed arteries. And that's where the cut suit comes in, the jewel in Stu's crown, invented here at Strategic Ops kept in a locked storage shed. The cut suit, as in a suit you cut, works kind of like a fat suit. Wow. So, um, arms go through here. You step into the legs. Uh-huh. The front side goes over the top of the vest and zips up in the back. It's a realistic looking body that you wear over your own body, and then, with the help of makeup artists, inflict horrible, very realistic injuries onto bullet holes, shrapnel wounds, even disembowelment. Trainees can learn how to perform or assist surgery on a cut suit where the intestines are literally hanging outside the body. And for that scenario, there's something important they need to learn. They need to learn that with a disemboweled comrade you are trying to save, there is a smell you don't want to encounter. Not just because it's disgusting, but because it means things may actually get worse. Um, no pun intended, oh shit. As a firefighter knows the smell of smoke, as a barista can sniff sour milk, surgeons know this smell. They fear it. Because this smell is a signal that something has gone wrong, that there's a tear in the intestine and shit is leaking into the abdominal cavity. This is a huge infection risk. People die this way. Whatever surgery you were just doing or attempting to do, you just complicated it by 10. Strategic ops prides itself on realism, hyper-realism. They have that word trademarked. So they needed to recreate that oh shit moment, show young soldiers what it would be like to encounter this in the midst of combat. There was only one smell for the job. We found it in the makeup tent, took it outside, and sat down at a table. We'll sniff the cap. Okay. In his hand, Greg holds the concoction that Alan Whitman invented in his high school bedroom, the liquid that threw an entire division of a multinational trucking company into chaos that made that lady on the Opie and Anthony show need to wash her ponytail. Oh, it's so bad. It's it's like... <laughs> it's so bad. So many adjectives that you could use. It's bad. Like, you know, fecal, dried, you know, nasty... If Liquid Ass were a person, I don't think it would be totally far-fetched to call this a redemption. 
Because to strategic ops, this ridiculous, disgusting prank product is also indispensable. They're one of Andrew and Alan's most loyal customers. Stu says 750,000 people have trained through strategic ops. Thanks to Liquid Ass, some of them might be better prepared to save the life of a fellow Marine as he or she screams in pain amidst exploding RPGs and machine gun fire. Stu, the silk stockings guy, when I ask him what he makes of all of this, this leap, get him to sort of wax philosophical, what he says is that liquid ass is all about the American dream. I think it's real smart. I think it's great, you know, where you can make something smell that bad and sell it and make money with it and call it what it is, liquid ass. (laughs) You know, I mean, please. (laughs) We live in a great country. You can get anything that does anything and smells like anything, I suppose, you know. No limits. No limits. It's all about uh, entrepreneurial Americanism. Remember Jason Masters, Andrew's brother, the one who was so happy to see his math whiz brother finally do something a little less conventional? This guy. Still waters run deep. It sounds at first like he's agreeing with Stu, that liquid ass is an American dream story for him too, in the sense that one madcap idea can make someone rich. But with Jason, liquid ass represents a different kind of American dream, a dream that takes us back to this product's humble prankster roots. And that's the dream of one lone man taking on an unjust system. Well, you gotta make your own way uh, in this freaking country. Because you know what? The bottom line is they won't take care of you. You need to take care of yourself. Jason used to work at the Ford plant. And then one day, after 16 years, he got laid off. I worked with 3,400 other people that got screwed just like I did. When Jason got laid off, he lost everything. His entire pension, a future he had counted on. There was nothing he could do about it. Well, almost nothing. There was that little plastic bottle that his brother had sent him. I took it up to Ford, and I sprayed it around, and I had a good time with it. No one got hurt. Things just smelled really bad for a while. You gotta do what you gotta do. No sense in going out without a fight. The Leap is produced by me, Amy Standen, and me, Judy Campbell, for KQED in San Francisco. Our team includes Jason Black, Annie Brown, Cecilia Lay, Susie Oki, Matt Williams, and Joanne Wallace. Eli Harwitz helped edit this story. The scoring is by Seth Samuel, with additional music from Nicholas Naity and Nathan Campbell. And by the way, this is our first episode. We're going to be releasing a new one every two weeks for the next few months. You can find them on iTunes and on Stitcher. And especially because we are so new, we would love it if you'd subscribe. The more of you that subscribe, the more likely it is we'll be able to make more episodes after this first season finishes up. Also, we really want to hear from you, which is why we set up a phone line. It's 415-553-8422. Call us and tell us about your leap or the leap of someone you know. Call and leave a message. We'd love to hear your voice. That's The Leap. Thanks so much for listening. Leaping lizards, is that really me? I wasn't born to fly, Lord, Lord, I was born to creep. So circle your buzzards over the yawning deep. I bet all I got against your life that I'm gonna
Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.